This episode is brought to you by a brand new sponsor of the show, Picmonic. Picmonic is an audiovisual learning system with unforgettable stories and characters to help you remember everything you need to know for PT school and beyond. Used by over 1.5 million students all over the world, Picmonic is perfect for streamlining your studying in an efficient manner. Listeners of the show can use the promo code SNACKBREAK in all caps for a 20% discount, and first-time users can start today for free. Getting access to one learning objective and one Picmonic quiz per day, forever, at zero cost. Available on iOS, Android, and desktop. Once again, listeners of the show can use the promo code SNACKBREAK in all caps at checkout. Happy studying, and let's get right into the show. The Residency Playbook, a step-by-step guide to mastering the RFPT CAS and securing a spot in your dream physical therapy residency. Written and read by... John Schaefer, Doctor of Physical Therapy, Certified Strength Conditioning Specialist. Disclaimer, I have no direct affiliation with the RFPT CAS. This book is simply a recollection of my experiences applying to a physical therapy residency with the hopes of encouraging students and clinicians to further their education in the field of physical therapy. Forward. I first set out to write this book following my last semester of physical therapy school. In considering a variety of paths following graduation in May, I decided that residency training was a route I wished to pursue. However, outside of residency trained alumni and students who had graduated a year ahead of me and pursued residency training, there were very few resources available to me regarding a step-by-step approach of how to apply and successfully get admitted to a physical therapy residency program. With that in mind, I set out to create exactly that, a step-by-step foolproof playbook for any physical therapist or physical therapy student looking to advance their clinical skills and career through residency training. The contents within the following pages will provide you with all the answers to the questions you might have about the application process itself, interview procedures when the time comes, and residency training itself. My ultimate goal is to write the book I wish I had as I successfully navigated the frustrating and less an obvious path to securing a highly coveted spot within a residency program. This book is meant to be an easy read and interactive in nature, in that I have included written activities and brainstorming exercises throughout to allow for you to track your thoughts and ideas as various topics are discussed. It's easy to get overwhelmed during this process, making my goal simple, to reduce the stress of applications and make this process as straightforward and foolproof as possible. With that being said, let's go ahead and get started. Chapter 1. Is Residency Training Right for You? Before we dive further into the book, we need to have an honest conversation about why you're here in the first place, and furthermore, if residency training is a worthwhile pursuit for you. So let's dive in. If you made it this far and you're holding this book in your hand or listening to the audio version, it's probably safe to assume you have a general understanding of what a residency program is. However, for those less familiar, and to make sure we're all on the same page moving forward with a baseline understanding of what you might be getting into, I will attempt to describe the basis of residency training. Residency training has existed within the medical profession for over 125 years. It was initially described as an opportunity for doctors to have sufficient time to pursue problems in depth while fostering relationships with other physicians to understand the whole patient. As medicine has advanced and providers have developed a better understanding of diseases and conditions, residency training has exploded in popularity and, frankly, necessity. To date, over 90% of medical students go on to complete residency training. Unsurprisingly, the field of physical therapy has evolved during this time as well. From the time physiotherapy was mentioned in 1813, The field has evolved from an associate's degree to a bachelor's degree to a master's degree and finally to a doctorate degree in the late 1990s. Fast forward to 2022 and there are residencies everywhere within the field of physical therapy, 347 to be exact. So why are they becoming more popular and what benefits do they have to offer? Residency programs are typically built on three pillars, mentorship, academia, and research. Each program may value these components in different ways, and that is extremely important to consider when you begin your residency search. I will break down each category to help provide a better understanding of how these different pillars can contribute to your growth as a clinician within the field of physical therapy. Pillar 1. 
Mentorship. Think personal growth. Mentorship is one of the biggest buzzwords among students and new graduates within any field. Everyone wants the opportunity to learn from those who have accomplished the same objectives and goals that they are setting out to achieve. I'll give you this analogy regarding mentorship. Imagine you're trying to solve a crossword puzzle, but the letters are in a foreign language. You know your end goal, but don't understand how to make sense of the situation to get there. If you had a translator next to you, your life would be far easier and you'd have all the tools to sort through the puzzle. It might not be a walk in the park, but due to this resource, you would have additional support and guidance in reaching your goals. In essence, your mentor is acting as the translator, using their acquired skill and experience to help you solve challenges that arise during your journey to achieve mastery in the desired field. Each accredited residency program is required to include 150 hours of one-on-one mentorship to each resident. This may come in the form of in-clinic mentorship on your patient caseload, your mentor's patient caseload, or discussions outside the clinic on current patients. With such variety in mentorship structures, it is crucial to clarify when investigating various programs, what type of mentorship is offered, and what a typical week of mentorship might look like. Don't worry, we'll cover this much more in depth later on in the book, as well as other questions to ask and things to look for in your residency hunt. The bottom line is, most programs provide easy access to highly acclaimed faculty and clinicians, along with a primary mentor to guide you in your clinical practice. Allowing a fast track to clinical mastery that may be much more challenging if accepting an entry-level job following graduation and hoping for similar levels of mentorship. Pillar number two, academia. Think research and teaching. Residency training provides a unique opportunity to participate in a variety of educational activities, ranging from lecturing in classroom and serving as a teaching assistant in labs for local DPT and PTA programs, becoming a certified clinical instructor, participating in development and presentation of research, and so on. Within a residency program, the resident will find themselves on the cutting edge of the latest research in the field and in a position to share that knowledge with those around them. Interacting with students and clinicians to push the field further is a phenomenal opportunity that residents are afforded. Following graduation, the resident will be positioned to take on additional roles within academia, including classroom educators, researchers, or even program developers and directors. Depending on the program, this pillar might carry additional weight. In looking at the structure of various programs, some will even include a faculty track option for those with the goal of becoming a faculty member within a physical therapy program. Outside of residency training, the route to becoming a professor may take five to ten years as opposed to one to two. This is yet another example of residency training accelerating professional goals. Pillar number three, clinical practice, think professional growth. The ultimate goal of a residency program is to position the resident to be eligible to take and pass the physical therapy specialty board certification exam. This may be in orthopedics, sports, neurology, acute care, oncology, wound management, cardiovascular and pulmonary, clinical electrophysiology, pediatrics, or women's health. In order to sit for these exams, the candidate must either A, amass X number of direct patient care hours, typically 2,000, within the last 10 years, having 25% come from the last two years, along with other requirements depending on the specialty, or B, complete a postgraduate residency in said specialty. Over the course of the residency, the resident will participate in didactic coursework. Again, the structure will vary based on the program and weekend seminars with the goal of clinical mastery of didactic knowledge to prepare them to take and pass the board specialty exam, further accelerating their career. With those three pillars in mind, hopefully it's starting to become clear that there are many motivating factors a potential resident may have in mind based on his or her future goals within the profession, and there's not necessarily a single reason why individuals might wish to apply. With all this in mind, I think it's incredibly important to consider your why for residency training. If it's simply, it seems like a cool opportunity, or I'm sure this would advance my career, think deeper. There are so many opportunities within the world of physical therapy, there's no reason to prolong your training with no clear end goal. I can't tell you if your why is reasonable or makes sense, but I highly encourage you to consider it. This was the biggest piece of advice I was given as I started thinking about residency training myself. Chapter 2. 
the journey begins. Congratulations, you found your why and are presumably ready to continue the journey to finding the perfect residency. I'm sure you're asking yourself where to even begin. If you're like me, residency training was covered very briefly in your education and not something that was continually highlighted as an opportunity following graduation. Depending on where you are at with your timeline, the first step is thinking about what you want in a program. Some questions to consider might include, do you have a strong interest in teaching? Do you want to work with a specific population? Do you want to be stationed in an academic environment? And the list goes on. Start asking yourself some of these questions and come up with a list of non-negotiable items you aim to find in a residency program. To aid in your exploration of ideas and cement some of your thoughts on paper surrounding residency training, I've included a few brief exercises to help you work through several of the ideas i provided up until this point. Of course, nothing here is permanent. This is just a start and could serve as a great reminder to come back to. Additionally, if you aren't certain what you want at this time, use it as a running list. Write down some ideas and revisit them later on. Activity number one. Write down any non-negotiable items or qualities that a residency program must have below. At this point in time, pull out a pen and paper, list one through five, and start writing down some ideas. Pause and return when you are ready. Activity number two, sliding scales of interest. Where are you at now? Simply circle the number of how important each aspect of residency training is to you at this point in time. If you want to revisit... Simply mark in pencil now and come back with pen later on. I recommend assessing each program with this mental chart in mind and seeing how its offerings match up with what you are looking for. Begin by writing down on your sheet of paper, mentorship slash professional development. Underneath, I want you to draw a horizontal line with a zero on the left side marking the least important and then 10 on the right side marking the most important. I want you to simply make a straight line anywhere on that line where you fall at this point in time in terms of that category's importance. Once you have completed that, I want you to do the same for teaching slash educational opportunities and then research exploration. Go ahead and pause while you complete this activity and hit resume when you are ready. By completing these brief activities and listing these important criteria, you're essentially gaining your first peek into the extensive self-reflection that will follow in the coming months as you work through your application. Look at your responses and realize that you're essentially highlighting the desired experiences you wish to obtain and route to your long-term goals, whether that is teaching, research, private practice, working with a specific population, etc. You are starting to form a vision of what your life and practice as a physical therapy will look like. As this journey continues, you'll have the opportunity to participate in further self-exploration, and if nothing else, the application process will provide clarity about who you are and what you wish to value moving forward. Choosing programs to apply to. Before you really begin to focus all your attention on the application, it is important to have programs in mind that you wish to apply to. If you do not, it's equivalent to visiting Amazon.com without any idea of what you wish to purchase. You'll surely find something, but did you actually need it and was it a great fit for your life right now? Well, maybe not so much. The approach I took in choosing which programs to apply to consisted of four phases. Phase 1, criteria development. Phase 2, program selection. Phase 3, meeting with program administration. Finally, phase 4, deciding whether or not to apply. I'm going to break down each of those four phases. Phase 1. Criteria development. We already spoke to this process earlier on in the chapter, giving you an idea of what the foundation for these programs is. The more confident you are in these criteria, the better opportunity you have to quickly move through programs and decide whether or not they are worth investigating further, which brings us to phase two. Phase two, program selection. With the RFPT cast open, select programs based on your criteria as well as additional factors, such as location, if there's a cost associated, what the salary is, etc., that make for a desirable program. Programs that do not meet the criteria get thrown out, and those who do meet the criteria advance to Phase 3. Phase 3, Meeting with Program Administration. 
One of the most valuable experiences you can have prior to submitting your application is meeting with a program director. Who knows the program better than them? No one. Most of the time, you can find their contact information either on the RFPTCast or through a simple Google search. Have a list of questions prepared and have a notebook handy to write down key takeaways from each meeting. You can use talking points and highlights from your conversations and essays down the road. To arrange a meeting with a faculty member, simply send an email such as this. Dear, insert program director's name, I hope you're having a great week so far. My name is, insert your name, and I'm currently a third-year physical therapy student at, insert your college. Next, insert a brief statement why you're pursuing residency training based on past experiences. Following several conversations with faculty and my clinical instructors, I've decided to pursue residency opportunities following my graduation in, insert the month. I have a strong desire for additional mentorship to have the opportunity to teach and lecture and improve slash fine-tune my clinical reasoning skills. I've done quite a bit of research on, insert the program's name, and would love the opportunity to talk with you over the phone or on Zoom sometime in the next few weeks if your schedule allows. I'm looking forward to learning more about the program and sharing some of my goals as I move closer to graduation. All the best. Insert your name. Now, obviously, adjust the email as appropriate, but simply tell them who you are, why you're interested in their program, and that you'd like more information. Directors love to talk to prospective applicants and are not going to sugarcoat any aspects of their program. Additionally, they'll often give you the current resident's contact information as well if you have specific questions for them. Phase four, deciding whether or not to apply. By this point in time, you should have a good feel for the type of opportunity this program presents. Having done your own research in phase one, meeting with the faculty, talking with current residents in phases two and three, your confidence should be fairly high in determining the potential fit at said program. Based on this knowledge, make your decisions. Some will obviously be easier than others as it's time to move forward with the application process. A pro tip here. Depending on time, access to financial resources, and the overall headaches created by an excess number of applications, try and keep your selection of programs between five and seven. Remember that each program you apply to is three to five more essays, another potential interview, more decisions later down the line. Only apply to programs you see yourself at and have a strong desire to attend should you be accepted. Unlike college, there's not really a such thing as a safety net program. Chapter 3. Navigating the RFPT CAS. Remember the Common App you filled out when applying to colleges? The PT CAS when you're applying to PT school? Think of the RFPT CAS as its older, slightly less annoying sibling. Taken straight from the official website, the RFPT CAS, or Residency and Fellowship Physical Therapist Centralized Application Service, is a centralized application service for post-professional residency and fellowship education programs accredited by the American Board of Physical Therapy Residency and Fellowship Education, or ABTRI, of the American Physical Therapy Association, APTA. Now that's a mouthful, but in this chapter I will break down section by section RFPTCAS answer questions I had and issues I came across when submitting my applications. First steps. The RFPTCAS application portal opens, quote-unquote, in early October each year. Well, that's not super helpful. During my application cycle, I would check back daily towards the back half of September with no update or sign when it would open. In retrospect, this time would have been better spent researching various programs because in reality, it doesn't matter if the application's open or not if you don't know what programs you're gonna apply to. Once the application opens, you will create a username and password and then obtain access to your account. You will then notice there are four categories for you to complete. Category number one, personal information. Category number two, academic history. Category number three, supporting information. And finally, category number four, program materials. In all honesty, one and two are the most straightforward, and I would highly recommend completing these the day you open the application. I will give you the breakdown of these sections, but again, they are straightforward, and the application reviewers won't be spending too much time in these sections. Personal information. This section is made up of a release statement, biographic information, contact information, citizenship information, race and ethnicity, and other information. This section should not take more than 5 to 10 minutes to complete, 
And you'll notice as you move through the applications, the more you can check off your list, the better you'll feel about things. Academic history. This next section is fairly straightforward as well and is composed of colleges attended and continuing education courses. If you are a new grad, you will most likely be opting out of continuing education. However, if you've taken any weekend courses or completed any CEUs, they can be placed here. Now for the fun part, colleges attended. Between studying abroad, summer classes, undergraduate education, and graduate education, I had to list four different colleges in this category. The good news, however, is that you do not need to request transcripts from all of these institutions. You only need to request a transcript from your primary institution, that is, the program you received your DPT from. You will be prompted to request a transcript from that institution and will be directed to an external site to submit your payment information. This process can take anywhere from three to seven business days, hence my suggestion to get it done ASAP so you don't even have to think about it as the application deadlines creep closer and closer. If it does come down to it, programs vary on their acceptance of applications with transcripts that are quote-unquote still pending, meaning that if you have submitted for your school to send them, but they have yet to be sent, you may still be in the clear depending on the program. With that being said, if you send them early, it'll be one last thing for you to worry about. Supporting information. Now's the time to clean up that resume. Now that we've completed the easier part of the application, it's time to get into the meat and potatoes. The supporting information section is meant to tell reviewers your story and show reviewers where you have been, either during your time at school or what you have accomplished in your professional career thus far. This section is made of, of experiences, achievements, licenses, residencies and fellowships, credentials and certifications, and memberships. Now, before you get overwhelmed with wondering what actually needs to be included and what can be left off, in the conversations I've had with program directors, this section is far less important than you might initially think. Don't get me wrong, you should still do your absolute best to make sure it is spotless and highlights what a great candidate you are, but don't get overwhelmed with thinking it needs to be perfect. When I filled out this section, I really struggled with how specific to be and how much to include. I had so many different experiences to pull from and I wasn't sure what reviewers were looking for. I put down the application and started a separate but similar and equally important pursuit, resurrecting my resume from the dead. Sure, I had updated my resume here and there, but it was time to clean it up and see it was still important. I chose to give my resume a makeover uh, and focus on the headings education, clinical experience, leadership experience, additional experiences, and certification slash accomplishments slash awards slash honors. As I filled out these sections, it became crystal clear what events in my life and academic achievements were actually important to me and worth including in my application. Another pro tip. When writing your subheadings on your resume, simply Google power verbs for resume and make sure you are including them. They will essentially bring your resume to life, more so than common verbs you might hear every day. Once you've completed your resume, the legwork is over. Now, it is simply about finding what section works best to insert your awesome accomplishments and experiences. Supporting information subcategories. Experiences. Think about clinicals or jobs you've had, teaching opportunities in school or in the community, leadership roles, or important volunteer work. Achievements. Think about scholarships, honors, or awards given to you by your school or employer. Licenses. If you haven't graduated, opt out. If you are currently practicing, simply insert your license number. Residencies slash fellowships. If you haven't completed a residency or fellowship, simply opt out. If you have, add in any additional information as appropriate. Credentials or certifications. Were you a personal trainer or did you get your CSCS certification? Do you have a teaching or language certificate? Are you CPR, BLS, ALCS certified? This is a section for any certification you may have. I included my CSCS and CPR certification as well as an English as a Second Language teaching certificate that I was awarded for volunteer work in Spain. You'll find within the application there's a place for everything. Memberships. This is a question that always comes up. How important is it to be an APTA member and a section member of the specialty of the residency that I'm applying to? 
There are definitely varying opinions here, but the advice I was most often given was that it won't make or break your application if you don't have it. Many DPT students are required to be APTA members, and additional section membership is typically less than $20. It might be worth considering if you want one extra bump on your application. What programs are looking for with this box is whether or not the applicant is interested in what's within the field of physical therapy as a whole, and if they're willing to contribute to the success of the governing body. Ultimately, it's up to you, but it is a good idea if you aren't a section member that you are keeping up with the latest research and articles within your specialty in another way. Program materials. This section is uniquely dependent on the programs you apply to. Every institution will see the first three sections on your application. This fourth section is a dealer's choice, so to speak. Oftentimes, this section is composed of home, questions, documents, and evaluations. Home. This section will give you an overview of the program, any important dates or contacts, and if there is any kind of application fee. It is super important to note that this fee is in addition to the RFPTCAS submission fee. It is either paid to the program or taken in the form of a donation to a local hospital or charity with ties to the program. It varies from program to program, but your application will not be reviewed unless this fee is addressed. Questions. This section is composed of individual essays from the institution. There may be as few as three and all the way up to six, which is the most I've ever seen. The challenging part of these essays is that many of them are between 1,000 and 2,000 characters, not words, characters. You have to be concise, thoughtful, and communicate your story effectively. This is the section to bring your resume to life. I provide sample essays towards the end of this chapter. Documents. Here is where you'll either attach your resume or submit your CV, curriculum vitae. Wait a second, is my resume not enough? Again, this is your call, but creating and submitting a CV gives you a little bit more space and flexibility to tell your story. Think of the CV as a full history of your academic credentials. It isn't restricted in length, so you can include anything and everything relevant. And no, you don't need to scrap your resume. You can just add on more sections or include more subheadings as you may see fit. When given the option for a CV or resume, I'm choosing CV 9 times out of 10. There may there also may be spaces for research or other documents, but this varies from program to program. If you authored any research or were involved in studies, this would be the place to put it. And don't let it freak you out when you see it. These boxes are often included with programs that have a heavier emphasis on research. During your interview, just be prepared to share what research interests you have, and that although you have had minimal exposure thus far, you're excited to develop the skills and abilities necessary to participate in research or something along those lines. Evaluations. I'm sure you've been told how important it is to develop relationships with professors, bosses, coworkers, etc. in case you ever need a letter of recommendation. Well, now you finally do. This section may require anywhere from three to five recommendations with one needing to be from a clinical instructor. I typically suggest students obtain their letters from three sources. Source one, a clinical instructor. We already knew that. Source two, a faculty member who teaches within your specialty of interest or who can vouch for the type of student leader you are. Source number three, a mentor or someone outside the academic space who has witnessed your personal development. Utilizing individuals from these three spaces will ensure that there is minimal overlap between the letters. If you are asking someone for a letter of recommendation, do so in person, if possible, or otherwise over the phone. This individual is setting aside a significant amount of time and committing to professional development. It's only right to spend some time speaking with them. This meeting should be scheduled about three months before the letter is due. I know too many people who waited within the month window to ask a professor for letters and unfortunately were declined. Activity number three. Write down five to ten names of potential referees. Simply pull out your sheet of paper that you are already using and label one through five. Write down a few different ideas of people you might consider reaching out to, and if you have their contact information, feel free to place that down too. If you don't have their contact information, make a note and find a way to get it. Complete the activity and press resume when ready. Another pro tip. Following your meetings, provide each reference with a highlighted copy of your resume, or better yet, CV, and what you'd like them to speak about. 
Chances are they've written a letter of recommendation before and have an idea of what they would like to speak to. But if there is something that you want highlighted, let them know. Furthermore, if you know they do not have experience writing letters of recommendation, you can send them example PDFs. It's easy to find one online with examples of what to do and what not to do. They may or may not end up using it, but oftentimes this is a case of better safe than sorry. Supplemental essays. As previously touched on, supplemental essays are your time to bring your resume to life. Something interesting to note here is that there are default questions under each program. They are as follows. Question number one, what do you wish to gain through participation in a residency slash fellowship program? Question number two, discuss aspects of your background and professional experience that may particularly qualify you for participation in a residency or fellowship program. Question number three, what are your future plans as they relate to a specialized or subspecialized area of physical therapy? Now, there's nothing wrong with these questions. They cover all the basis of why you're here, what you hope to get out of the experience, and what your future plans are. Just know that the program director did not add additional questions. I've seen some supplemental sections with up to five or six prompts with questions ranging from what is your biggest non-clinical failure to what do you have to offer the program in terms of diversity. It really depends on what the supplemental information the program director is looking for. Now that we understand what these questions mean, let's talk a little bit about the best way to answer them. The formula is quite simple. Now, if you have a physical copy of the book, it may be a little bit easier to see the way I break down these essays, but I'll do my best to convey the same in this audio space. Example response to question number one, what do you wish to gain through participation in a residency or fellowship program? For this essay, I want you to pick out the top three things you wish to gain from residency training. You can then touch on each topic for one paragraph using the following strategy. First, list the experience you wish to gain, then list why, the, why it is important to you based on that prior experience. Finally, list how that residency program will provide that which you wish to gain. Paragraph 1. Through residency training at removed, I aspire to gain invaluable mentorship by engaging with a diverse body of faculty and clinicians who empower me to fine-tune my clinical reasoning skills and provide the best care possible for my patients. Connecting with removed alumni, as well as leaders within the field of physical therapy that I have sought out online has resulted in excellent mentorship experiences and personal growth thus far. I know that 13 months of continuous exposure to expert clinicians will allow me to expand on these prior mentorship experiences and further enrich my skill set. Now, simply rinse and repeat using that same formula for paragraph number two. Paragraph number two. I aspire to cultivate the expertise necessary to serve as a role model and mentor for the next generation of clinicians. Through educational opportunities in both the classroom setting as a teaching assistant, as well as in the clinic as a clinical instructor, I desire to expand my teaching abilities to better serve future students and clinicians. Through my recent role as a lab teaching assistant for the removed, I have realized the joy in educating others and strive to continue to support the learning of those around me. At removed, I seek to gain the opportunity to interact with a wide variety of students in the removed area and provide educational resources, study groups, and more for students interested in orthopedic care. Hopefully you're starting to see a trend here. Now let's finish strong with paragraph three. Paragraph three. I aspire to further explore my interest in research and evidence-based care. During my last clinical rotation, I had the opportunity to research the biomechanics of the knee pathologies and best practices based on tissue healing time. Through engagement in journal clubs and case presentations, I will experience additional growth in utilizing research, as well as improvement in applying the latest evidence in treating complex orthopedic patients, ultimately empowering me to advance our profession. As you can see, I was cut short on words during the last paragraph. Luckily, the program I was applying to did not have a high emphasis on research, so it wasn't a huge deal. Be mindful of what the program is looking for and match your essays to highlight those areas. Hopefully, you can start to see the formula in place for writing these answers. It is clear, it is easy to follow, and it provides direct links from your past, present, and future, and how your residency year is going to serve as a bridge to help you reach your goals. 
Example response to question number two. Discuss aspects of your background and professional experience that particularly qualify you to participate in residency or fellowship program. For this essay, don't be shy. Now's the time to show what makes you great and why you deserve a spot in next year's cohort. Go out there and earn it. The formula I used for this essay was to list what qualities make a great candidate and then use two examples of experiences that demonstrate how I embody those qualities. Example essay, paragraph one. Having a tremendous drive, skill in collaboration, and persistence in the face of opposition are all hallmark traits of a successful resident. In the spring of 2020, I demonstrated each of these characteristics as I was awarded the removed grant valued at $1,800 to develop my project, inspiring future allied health professionals today. The aim of this endeavor was to collaborate with removed allied health professional students to provide engaging learning experiences for traditionally underserved youth populations and removed. Due to the pandemic, I redesigned our in-person programs in a virtual format in collaboration with a team of 15 volunteers, creating online learning modules and instructional handouts. This experience helped me to realize the importance of adaptability and perseverance through challenging times and stressful setbacks to reach desired outcomes. I'll bring forth these lessons and mindset to removed as I seek additional teaching and research opportunities that pique my interest and positively impact the community. Using the same strategy for paragraph number two. Paragraph number two. Additionally, I have put forth a great amount of time and effort towards improving organizations that have positively impacted me. Within the program of physical therapy at removed, I was elected as physical therapy student association president and developed a 30-person diversity, equity, and inclusion subcommittee. I also served as a student ambassador, mentoring prospective students and meeting with external academic program reviewers. These opportunities allowed me to share my lived experience with others and realize the impact I can have in elevating a program and all those within it. Once that removed, I will continue to utilize these skills by reaching out to faculty, staff clinicians, and other residents to find ways I can use my expertise in communication and leadership to further enrich the program as a whole, as well as surrounding communities. Once again, if you follow the simple formula, these essays make sense and are very readable for the viewer. Example response to question number three. What are your future plans as they relate to a specialized or subspecialized area of physical therapy? Now, this question has more room for variability depending on future interests. However, it's still important to follow a sequence. The sequence I followed was as follows. Paragraph one should cover the main areas of your future plan. Paragraphs two through four should break those areas down and provide previous experiences and how the specific residency program will help you reach your goals. Example, following completion of removed residency program, I will lead by educating and mentoring the next generation of clinicians, providing an expert level of care for patients in my community, and offering a variety of health-related resources for individuals beyond my immediate geographic location. Through previous leadership roles on and off campus, I recognize how strongly I feel about affecting change in my community. Having the opportunity to be a CI and gain additional classroom experience teaching during my time as a resident will position me to excel in those settings immediately following graduation. My current plan in regards to teaching and mentorship is to seek out opportunities to guest lecture in orthopedic courses and find a teaching assistant position at a local DPT or PTA program. I have additional interest in being involved in residency development as well. In terms of providing an expert level of care to my community, my future plan stretches beyond any clinic position I will accept. I recently earned my CSCS certification and intend to find opportunities to develop strength and agility programs for local schools and universities. Also, I will continue to seek out opportunities to participate in pro bono work. My long-term goal at this point in time is to use my advanced orthopedic knowledge and skill set and differential diagnosis to open a private practice in a direct access setting. Lastly, I plan on disseminating evidence-based knowledge of orthopedics online to reach a broader audience. Five years ago, I started blogging online and have since reached an audience of nearly 500,000 individuals. I recently created a corresponding podcast and Instagram page in which I cover orthopedics, mentorship, and interview content experts. 
As my reach expands, I will maintain a focus on educating and mentoring the next generation of clinicians with the latest research, continuing my journey as a lifelong learner. There is slightly more variability in this essay and different ways you can successfully take it. This is just another example and suggestion for a potential route. Submitting the RFPT CAS. There are very few logistics in the actual submission of your application. Step one, make sure all sections have a green check mark completed next to them. Step two, pay any associated fees. So $100 for the entire application plus $40 for each additional program. Step three, look out for supplemental fees. These are sometimes listed on the residency website and may be made out to the school in the form of a charitable donation or otherwise stated. It's super important to double check whether the program has any or not because they may not review your application if they do not receive the supplemental payment. When in doubt, email the program director to make sure all your materials have been submitted. Step four, sit back, try and relax and realize you have a lot to be proud of making it this far. It has been an arduous journey full of twists and turns and you've put in the legwork in completing your materials. Now a few things are out of your hands for a brief period. Try and distract yourself if this is the final submission or finish those remaining applications. Things to watch out for, the red flags of residency. I wanna make it explicitly clear that not all residencies are created equal. It is extremely important to be able to determine what makes a quote-unquote good residency and what situations may fall into the category of unfulfilled promises for decreased pay. When thinking about categories of residencies, let's divide them into three separate tiers, accredited, candidacy, and non-accredited programs. Accredited. These programs are almost always a green light in terms of being quote-unquote safe to apply to, they have met all the requirements, including curriculum development, site reviews, etc., that have earned them the stamp of approval from the ABTRI, American Board of Physical Therapy Residency and Fellowship Education, the governing body of residency training. In essence, accreditation is a gold star for a program that the ABTRI wants to associate with and that meets the general mark of quality all around. Candidacy. These programs are a yellow light. You could go ahead and apply if you like the director and are feeling confident the faculty and staff, but certainly not the safest option. In most cases, programs who have made it to the candidacy phase will go on to receive accreditation, but there is always a chance it may not make it through. Additionally, you should be mindful of the pros and cons surrounding a candidacy program. The biggest consideration is that it is likely relatively new meaning that you could help shape the, shape the residency experience to an extent to match your interests. On the other hand, it may be less organized as the faculty and staff try to solidify the way that they want to operate as a program. Non-accredited. Big. Red. Flag. If a program is not accredited, they have not met the standards of ABTRI and or have not sought out accreditation. If you're looking at these programs, ask yourself what they're offering and what they're asking for. Many times you might see one or two year options at a significant salary cut as well as mention of mentorship and didactic programming. Make sure you know what you're getting into and decide whether or not the value you are receiving is worth whatever the residency is asking for or in return. These programs are often housed within larger physical therapy companies and again do not meet the requirements that the ABTRI has set out. Be mindful. With that being said, at baseline, each residency program should provide the following. A minimum of 150 hours of one-on-one -on -one mentorship. A minimum of 300 educational hours. A minimum of 1,500 patient care hours exclusive from one-on-one -on -one mentorship. You can find the latest quality standards in a PDF format if you simply Google it on the Abtree website. I will attach the latest quality standards PDF and the suffix for additional quality standards from the APTA regarding residency training so that you can compare programs to the minimum expectation and make sure they are meeting and hopefully exceeding them. Chapter four, interviews. Who doesn't love a good interview? Well, most people. After all, you're being interrogated and assessed on responses that may ultimately determine if you're worthy of receiving the position. With that being said, 
Practice makes these interviews so much easier and lowers the stakes tremendously. So relax and let's get started. The format of interviews is variable. In many cases, there will be a small panel and large panel interview. The small panel is typically composed of current residents or a few faculty. Although this is important, in most cases it serves as the warm-up and the questions are not as intense. One of the residencies I interviewed at had five back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back 20-minute interviews. The first four were the smaller panel followed by the large panel. As you can imagine, it is just a lot of talking on your end and can be draining. It is a marathon and not a sprint. Just note that the large panel will carry significantly more weight than the small panel in most cases. The large panel is typically composed of the most important individuals within the residency, most often leadership. The program director, research coordinator, and most involved faculty, etc. will all be present. For these panels, don't be surprised if you walk into a room of, you know, six to ten people who will be interviewing you. It can be intimidating at first, so I'd highly advise breaking out some sort of small talk to get more comfortable with the room. Next, I'm going to address some common questions as well as some more challenging patient cases just to get an idea of things you should be thinking about. I'm going to split the questions up into three tiers. We're going to go tier one. There's a 99% chance you'll be asked these questions. I was asked them in every single interview. You likely will be too. Tier two. 60% of you will be asked these questions. Have a good answer in mind, but no, they might not come up. Tier 3, less than 50% of the time. Think about these questions, but don't beat yourself up over them. Tier 1, tell me about yourself. Don't overthink it. This question is asking for a brief history that has led you to where you are now, what you are currently doing, followed by your future trajectory. If you split this question up into those three parts, you'll be able to provide a cohesive response with some childhood background and some of your interests, how they have intersected with your career, and why residency training is the next step for you. It's as easy as one, two, three. Why are you applying to our program? This is the single most important question you will answer in any interview. If you don't have a great answer here, it doesn't matter how the rest of your interview goes. Residency offers and acceptance are all about fit, and this question gives the program an impression on what that fit looks like. A home run answer will include two to three distinguishing points on what makes this program unique and why you're drawn to that uniqueness. Some examples would include the patient population, unique opportunities in the surrounding community, the opportunity to be a clinical instructor or teach, and the list goes on. Show the interviewing committee that you did your research and know a good amount about the program. Now is the time to pull specific bits and pieces of information from their program mission, website, etc. It is a chance to flex the research you have done and show them why you believe you are a good fit. How do you handle stress? Residency training can be stressful. Between working full-time in clinic keeping up with didactic lectures, research, and other opportunities, there will be times of stress involved. Interviewers want to ensure that you will be able to succeed in this environment and that you have a proven track record and methods of handling stress in your own life. A home run answer will include two parts, with examples of course. The first part will mention how you handle personal stress outside of the clinic. Maybe you work out, call friends and family, have another hobby that helps you de-stress, etc. Whatever it is, have a concrete example that shows some personality and that you have a steady means of managing the stresses in your life. The second part of that answer should be specific to your practice in the clinic. Recall a time that you experienced a stressful situation and then how you handled that situation. An easy answer can be managing multiple patients at once and taking a few deep breaths and knowing that you have multiple plans if things don't go according to plan A. The more specific you get with your clinical example, obviously the better. What is your role in a group setting? This question is looking at your leadership style, how you interact with others, etc. The tendency here is to want to be vague, but it is super important you hone in on naming a specific role. My go-to descriptors were quote-unquote director and quote-unquote glue, referencing my ability to help set a vision, 
direct our progress, and offer support throughout the upcoming work. This question also gives you the opportunity to describe how, you, how you've evolved in group work. It is a great chance to share a story in which your leadership style has failed you, how you evolved into adapting other styles, and the success that you've had moving forward. A home run answer may be something along the lines of how you used to try and drive group projects all by yourself, regardless of the other's schedules or dedication of the project, and you realize this was far from the most effective strategy. Moving forward, you made sure at the beginning of each project to hear the ideas and strategies of group members to create an overall vision or end goal for the project. Rather than micromanaging the group, you were able to offer support and help act as the glue for the project rather than trying to do everything by yourself. This yielded far greater outcomes and team camaraderie by ensuring everyone was involved and invested in the outcomes. Tier number two. Two members of your cohort are in a disagreement and are looking for you to help them settle it. What is your approach? This question is looking at how you deal with stressful conflict and how you would de-escalate a situation. It is important to note that you will be impartial to choosing a side. What's most important is helping both sides see the other side, level with each other, and realize that they likely have the same end goal in mind, but different ideas of how to get there. Help mediate the discussion and find a productive way to move forward. What is a question you would ask an applicant? Answer that question. This question is another tricky one, but if you are prepared for it, you can ask a question you already have a great response to. The question I chose was, if you're applying to several programs, what makes our program stand out and why would you choose it over others? Tier number three. What do you have to offer in terms of diversity for our program? Now, depending on your racial or socioeconomic background, you may have more or less to offer in terms of quote-unquote diversity in the traditional sense of the word. Regardless, I want to rephrase the question for you to what it is really asking. What makes you unique? Maybe it is the experiences you've had traveling and interacting with other subcultures, the non-physical therapy-related side projects you devote a lot of time to, your hobbies, etc. The interviewer wants to know what you bring to the table from a unique background. Everyone is coming into the application with their DPT, so what makes you stand out? Silly questions. These questions may or may not come up, but it's good to at least think about a little bit in case they do. Or better yet, to give you an idea of what some of these silly questions may be. What superpower would you choose and why? How would your best friend describe you? What was your favorite childhood snack growing up? What is your pump-up song? What is your favorite exercise and why? If you won the lottery, would you continue to practice PT? Don't feel like there's a perfect answer to these fun questions. The interviewers are simply hoping for you to show some personality and get a feel for who you are as a person. So, show some personality, but don't try and force humor or respond to what you think the interviewer might want to hear. Just have fun with it. Up next, patient scenarios. A patient comes in after six weeks and they're not getting better. They're furious with you. How do you respond? This question is all about managing expectations. I would begin by addressing the fact that to avoid this instance in the first place, I would have set a timeline for the patient to have a better idea of their recovery. However, now that we are here, it is important to get the patient's perspective and figure out why they don't believe they're getting any better. After having that conversation and hopefully de-escalating the situation, it's time to reevaluate the patient and set goals and expectations moving forward. Another tip is to discuss measuring objective data each visit, range of motion, strength, etc., so that the patient can see numerical improvement even on days where they do not feel that they are improving. To recap, acknowledge how this could have been prevented, listen to the patient, design a plan of care that is agreeable between you and the patient, and proceed. A patient suggests they would like to pursue a romantic relationship with you outside of the clinic. How do you respond? Absolutely not. Do not hesitate. Do not think twice. This is somewhat of a trap of a question. Having a patient pursue a relationship with you would compromise the patient-provider relationship, and that is not acceptable. You can go on to mention that you'd follow a hospital or company policy, and that may mean you're not able to treat the patient moving forward. 
However you answer this question, make sure the interviewer has no doubt in their mind that you know this is not acceptable behavior. A patient comes in status post rotator cuff repair and you lost your documentation. You try to keep it discreet, but perform inappropriate intervention on the patient who ends up re-tearing the rotator cuff. What do you do? Applicants may try and backtrack with this question, stating that they would never find themselves in this position in the first place. However, that's not the question. The question states you have found yourself in this non-optimal situation and have actually harmed your patient. Your answer should emphasize that you did indeed make a mistake and will do everything in your power to communicate with the doctor or other providers to make sure your patient receives the best care moving forward. What's done is done, and now the most important thing that you can do is acknowledge the mistake, be transparent, and direct the best plan of care for the patient moving forward. Next up, we are going to discuss live patient exams. Many residency programs incorporate a live patient exam into the interview process. During this process, you will enter a room with a simulated patient and several faculty from the program watching and taking notes. You will go through the subjective and objective exam and then list your top three differential diagnoses with supporting and refuting evidence. Now I'm not going to lie, this was incredibly nerve wracking, but I do have a few key pieces of advice to make the situation less stressful. First off, review common CPGs or clinical practice guidelines. If you simply look at low back clinical practice guideline and understand the differences between when to employ stability focus, manual therapy, or flexion extension based exercises, the shoulder classification system, etc., you will feel much more confident in defending your diagnoses. Plus, the staff will be impressed at your knowledge of CPG guidelines. Everybody wins. Up next, review the most common special tests. For the shoulder, maybe pick two impingement tests. Think about maybe near, Kennedy-Hawkins, drop arm, internal external rotation, leg. For the knee, think about Lachman's, Thessaly's, Apley's, Ferris and Valgus stress tests, the posterior drawer test. For the elbow, think about Varus and Valgus stress tests, maybe Maudsley's, Mills, Cozen's. The hand and feet are unlikely to be asked, but if so, just take range of motion, strength, examine ligament laxity, and progress from there. Really, during this process, don't overcomplicate things. Simply explain why you performed the exams that you did, and you will do just fine. Realize that these live patient exams are not so much about nailing down the differential diagnosis with 100% accuracy, but rather giving faculty a look into how you respond to stress, a mini mentorship session, and if you are able to have a conversation with and reflect on your performance. If you are defensive when corrected and unwilling to use it as a learning experience, it's really going to reflect poorly. So be positive, accept feedback with open arms, and try to get the most out of these exercises. Last minute interview logistics. Now that you have a better feel for the questions and an idea of what the interviewers are looking for in terms of answers, let's add another variable. Let's say the interview takes place in an online format. Nothing changes about the format, but there are some technicalities to be aware of that could save you some embarrassment and make your life a little bit easier. Number one, triple check the time zone the interview is occurring in. The last thing you want to do is miss your interview time because you thought it was scheduled for your time zone rather than the program's. If you aren't sure, email the director to confirm. Number two, place the video feedback screen right below your camera in the center of your computer. This one sure it looks like you're making eye contact with everyone on the call. It might not seem like a huge deal, but if you're looking all over the place and it doesn't appear that you're looking into the camera, it can be a distraction to other members on the call and take away from your answers. Number three, professional dress is still important. Whatever is visible on your screen should look presentable. Whatever is not invisible, well, that's another story. Pre-interview checklist. Check off each box when completed. Resume. Five copies tucked neatly in a folder, ready for distribution if needed. Notebook or something to write on. Inside the notebook, you should have written questions for faculty about the program, about five to ten. Some sample questions may include... What aspects of the residency program are you most proud of? How has the residency program changed over the last five years? What is the program's biggest weakness and what steps are you taking to address it? 
How do you ensure the residents gain a well-rounded experience outside of the specialty? For example, outside of orthopedics, outside of neuro, etc. What makes your program unique? How do you help prepare residents for their transition from residency to their first job? These are just some sample questions. Ask the program leadership questions related to your interests and topics that are important to you and your decision making. Questions for residents about the program, 5 to 10. Sample questions. Tell me about a time where you were struggling within the program and how the faculty and staff supported you. What is your favorite memory of the program? Do the residents socialize with one another? What is the dynamic between the cohort? What do you wish you would have known when you applied for this program or what has surprised you the most about the program? Is the workload manageable? What is the most challenging aspect? What do you wish were different about the program? What are your plans for next year? Also, bring a pencil, pen, water bottle, optional but good to have after the interview once you nail your interview whether it's in person or virtual it's time to thank those who interviewed you for their time a short message following an interview can make a huge difference and positively impact those who just interviewed you a sample email may look something like this hello insert program director's name who interviewed you i wanted to send you a quick note and thank you for taking the time to interview me I was very impressed with the facilities, the faculty and site coordinators, and current residents' willingness to engage and share their experiences. I appreciate having the opportunity to ask questions and learn more about all the unique aspects of the program. I would be thrilled to be a part of it in the future if the opportunity presents itself. Have a great weekend. All the best. Sign your name. This message is simple to the point and shows those involved in the program that you have a serious interest in being a part of their organization and culture. Chapter 5. Decision Time During my residency search, I found the period after initial interviews and between future interviews to be the most stressful and confusing time. It is a period in which you have a few interviews under your belt, you've yet to hear back of any offers from programs, and you're self-assessing your performance by replaying answers given in your mind. What's important to remember at this point in time is that what's done is done, and there's no going back and changing answers, revising body language or cues, or, additional, or adding additional value to your performance. You know what you did well, but unfortunately, you also know exactly what could have gone better. Be patient with yourself during this period. In my particular case, I had offers to interview at seven programs, went to four interviews in eight days, three which were in person and one that was virtual, and knew of one offer and one spot on a wait list by the following weekend. The thing that is so challenging is you start to ask yourself questions about whether or not you're leaving opportunities on the table by accepting an offer before an interview with other program. In most cases, you'll have a deadline of anywhere between two to seven days to make a decision, and depending on your schedule and interview dates for other programs, that may be limiting your ability to explore other options. Rather than panic or view this as detrimental in the process of uncovering the full picture of your potential within the world of residency training, I would invite you to perform the following exercise. Pull out a piece of paper, write down what is important to you in residency training, and again, think about your non-negotiables that we wrote down very early in the book. Ask yourself the question, does this program fulfill what is written on my sheet? If the answer is yes, it's a no-brainer. Accept that offer. If the answer is no, ask yourself what's missing. If you still have uncertainty about any aspect of the program, ask the director to either answer the question for you or they can put you in contact with someone who can provide a different or unique perspective. Realize what an amazing opportunity you have and that regardless of your ultimate decision, you successfully obtained a residency spot. Chapter 6 rejection. One of the things you'll hear over and over again when going through the process of residency applications is that the most important factor in determining whether or not an applicant is offered a position is a fit between the applicant and program. Okay, so what does that actually mean? Basically, you can be a phenomenal applicant and check every single box in terms of extracurricular involvement, grades, etc., but that doesn't guarantee you'll be the right fit for a particular program. 
That's why it's so incredibly important that you develop a relationship with the program directors, reach out to current residents, and develop a great all-around feel for the program and those within it. These conversations will allow you to recognize whether or not these programs provide the optimal fit. Additionally, you have to be prepared for a situation in which you might believe the fit is better than the residency program does. You have to think that many of these programs have seen at least 5 to 10 cohorts, and following interviews can pretty easily recognize what applicants are going to be the right fit for the program and see success within the organization. With all that in mind, it is important to know that rejection is a very real possibility. Many applicants struggle with this truth as they are high achievers who have not frequently been denied. Again, do not let your ego lead you to believe that any program is a sure thing. I'm not going to lie, this happened to me. I had an inflated sense of confidence following my first interview and happened to be waitlisted at that program. This was frustrating to me because I believed I had put together the perfect application, interviewed well, made a good impression during my site visits. The reality of this situation was it wasn't the perfect fit. And if you have to spend 10 to 14 months with these individuals, fit is everything. Don't get discouraged. Conclusion. Residency training is a phenomenal opportunity to expand your skills as a professional. However, it is not the end-all be-all. Again, I want you to realize how many opportunities there are within the field of physical therapy and ways to develop clinical practice. Especially as technology continues to improve, the resources online are practically endless. I also want to thank you. Thank you for taking the time and showing interest in your growth as a clinician. That mindset alone will continue to serve you well as you progress throughout your career. If you have any questions or want to chat about anything physical therapy, mentorship, or otherwise, feel free to reach out, and I'm more than happy to help however I can.